I invite you, if you'd like to turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, we're going to read uh, verses 15 down through 20, and then take a look at uh, verses 18 through 20. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are delighted that in this passage you show us the glories of your Son, telling us who he is. And as we look at the second half of this passage, as Christ is head of the church, we pray that you would enlighten our minds, embed within our thoughts the glories of your Son, that we might view him in a new way, in a majestic, powerful way as the head of the church, and so be able to better praise you and live for your glory. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Colossians 1 and verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. So beloved congregation of hope and everyone with us here this morning, if you want to geek out with me a little bit, um, I sort of alluded to this last time. If you take a look at verses 15 through 17, what is described for us is Jesus as preeminent over all of creation. The original creation that God made, Christ is the foremost over it. And if you look at verses 18 through 20, people have noticed that here he is described as the one who's foremost or preeminent over the new creation, over his church, and over what he is doing in Act 2, so to speak. So 15 to 17, preeminent over creation. 18 through 20, preeminent over the church, reconciling all things to himself. In the beginning of verse 21, he talks about what that means for us personally as believers. But before we get to verse 21, he describes the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who alone is able to reconcile all things to himself. Let me let me show the difference here between Jesus as preeminent over creation versus the new creation. Verse 15, he's the firstborn over all creation. Verse 18, he's the firstborn from the dead that he might be preeminent. Verse 16, all things were created through him and for him. And verse 20, through him, all things on earth and in heaven are reconciled to himself, all things in creation. Verse 17, he's before all things. Verse 18, he's the beginning. Verse 17, in him all things in creation hold together. Verse 18, he's the head of the body of the church. He holds the church together. Verse 15, he's the image of the invisible God. Verse 19, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So again, there's a lot of 
things which are almost doubled over regarding the Lord Jesus Christ. As he is to the creation itself, he is to the new creation and the church. And I want us to see this morning just three things regarding the Lord Jesus Christ in verses 18 through 20. He is, number one, the head of the church. Number two, the firstborn from the dead. And then number three, the reconciler. Those three things. So first, Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. Now, there are numerous pictures of the church in the New Testament. The church is described as a family or a household of God. It's described as a bride and a marriage to Jesus Christ, as an army of soldiers equipped to fight, as a flock of sheep, a temple, a vineyard, a building. And here in this passage, the church is depicted as the body, and Christ is called the head of the body. Now, this imagery of the body of Christ is actually flushed out quite a bit in Roman or in 1 Corinthians 12, where we're told details about how the body interacts and how we're not all the same. And we each need, we need, the church needs all the various parts of the body. But the passage before us in Colossians 1 does not flush out the various parts of the body. It just says that Jesus Christ is the head of the body, the church. And so we're going to stare at that for a little bit. First, I want to begin with what is the church? Well, Mark Maynell, in his work on Colossians, said this, The church does not simply mean the church with a capital C, that is, the body of believers drawn from every nation and generation. It means that, at least. But he's going to go a little farther. Listen to what he says. God's evidence includes the church that meets down the street where you live and the local congregation that you are perhaps part of and the fellowship nearby that gets up to some slightly wacky activities that you don't fully understand or accept, plus the tiny group of brothers and sisters forced to meet in secret because of an oppressive government regime, not to mention the church that seems staid and formal and is opposed to any music written after 1700. All of these are expressions of God's people living out their faith, and Jesus Christ is the head of all of them. Not just the church capital C, we know that's to be the case, that is exactly what Paul's talking about. But that means something. There are local expressions of the church, capital C, where believers gather together in all of our awkwardness with the local flavor of whatever that church looks like. The church is God's people who have already lived, as well as those who are currently living in all of its manifestations, as well as those who have yet to live. And Jesus Christ is said here to be the head of the church. Angels are not heads of the church. Prophets are not heads of the church. Pastors and teachers are not heads of the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Nothing else in all creation is the head. Now, I, wanna, I want us to consider just two things for a moment here. First thing I want us to consider is the head has authority over the body and rules the body. That's one thing embedded in the meaning of Jesus Christ being the head of the church. If Christ is the head of the church, and he is, and we are the body, which we are, then it is imperative that the church be a body which takes orders from the head. Jesus Christ is the one that we are all called to listen to. He's the one in charge of the church. In fact, he told the disciples, I will build my church. Notice he says it's my church, right? The church doesn't belong to any human being. It doesn't belong to any institution, the church of Jesus Christ belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And one of the ways that Jesus Christ rules over his church as the one in charge is what? His word, right? By his word and spirit, he governs his church. 
Now, there have always been and always will be pastors and teachers and believers and parents who teach contrary to the word of God or teach in such a way as to try to bind people to traditions or commandments of men, trying to force people to believe what they want them to believe rather than what the head of the church, Jesus Christ, wants people to be taught and to believe. And so just keep that tucked in the back of our heads, beloved, that no parent or pastor or Protestant pope or Roman Catholic pope no matter how big their personality, no matter how many titles behind their name, or no matter how much people may look to them and even worship them, no one is in charge of the church except Jesus Christ. It's his church. He alone is the head of the body. And be careful always that no matter who teaches, that no matter what doctrinal standard they might use to teach us, that we be ever so careful to keep the Bible as the sole source of our authority, right? It's by his word and spirit. Doctrinal standards are great. They're a roadmap to the Bible, but they're not the word of God. The word of God alone is living and it is active. And so Jesus Christ rules his church by his word and by his spirit. And beware people who say the Lord spoke to me or the Lord told me as if the Lord gave someone special revelation, which rose above the authority of his word And one way to diffuse that, I've heard that a few times, not here in Pella, but in Springfield, that was a common thing that people would say, the Lord told me, uh, the Lord spoke to me this. And I would follow up in two ways. I'd say, well, if the Lord told you, why didn't he tell me as well? (laughs) If he gave you an authoritative word that I'm supposed to hear, why didn't he just come directly to me? Why are you the uh, mediator of this word? Um, Or we can say, God has said anyone who adds to his words will be cursed. Are you about to add to his word with what you're going to tell me? Because the Lord's spoken in these last days by who? His son. He's revealed to us everything we need as his people, the body, the heads made himself clear. And so indeed, he may come to us and impress upon us passages from the Bible. He may come to us and convict us of things but there'll be truths found in the Bible, beloved. And the words that we're supposed to speak to one another in love are the words of truth found in his word. And beware this as well. There are some people who believe that the church is theirs. They say, hey, this is my church. Not not the way we might say, yeah, Hope is my church or Calvary CRC is my church or you know, first is my church home, right? Referring to, hey, that's where I'm, that's where I go worship. That's where I'm a member of the, of the body of Christ. But people who really think that the church is my church, that it's mine to govern, that it's mine to get my way in, and that I'm really the one in charge of the church and I'm the Lord of the church. Beware that spirit in ourselves, but also be mindful that it takes place in the world. Satan masquerades as an angel of light and he has plenty of people who desire to reign over the church in place of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one more thing under this uh, heading, uh, this consideration as the head has authority over the body and rules the body, is that as the ruler of the body, Jesus Christ challenges us. And so always be ready to grow as a believer, right? If Christ is the head of the body and he's the one in charge, and the body is growing, and we are individually growing and corporately growing, what do you think that will look like in our lives and in our life together? It will look like growth, right? It will look like we change. So always be ready. Always be ready to be confronted by the Holy Spirit with the Bible, with truths that force you to change what you believe or change how you live. 
Always be ready for that. I can guarantee as a believer it will happen in your life. It should happen. It's part of our spiritual growth. And it's what the head does for the body. And the one more thing I want to highlight, we could look at the, what, the, what the implications are of Christ being the head of the body, the church. We could look at a lot of them. The second one I want to highlight, though, that's embedded in him being the head is that the head is the one we are to grow up into. And I want to tug on that string just a hair from Ephesians because it's flushed out in a way that just the word itself doesn't uh, lend itself to in Colossians. Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth and love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Just two verses before that, Paul says, until we all attain to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And Paul is going to say later on, we agonize to present everyone mature in Christ. What's the point? If we're to grow up into the head, if we're to become like Jesus, then that's what the church is all about, right? That we're not trying to make people into our image. We're not trying to make people into little us's. We're actually trying to conform people into the image of Jesus Christ. That is one of the ministries of the church to make people more like Jesus. Romans 8, 29, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. When we disciple people in the church, the question we're to be asking is not, are they like me? Do they fit my preference? Will they make my life in the church easier? How can I make that possible? The question is, How can I make them more like Jesus? That's the question we're all asking for ourselves and for each other. How can I be useful to make someone else more like the Lord Jesus Christ? Because he is the head. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said this regarding one of the ministries of the church. It's easy to think the church has a lot of different objects, education, building, missions, holding services. But the church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ to make them little Christs. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. It is even doubtful, you know, whether the whole universe was created for any other purpose. And so think about that. He's the head, we're the body. We are to grow up into the head to become like him. That is what this means to be part of the church. We become more and more like Jesus. Well, the second thing that we're told about Jesus Christ is not only the head of the church, he's the firstborn from the dead. Verse 18, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now we're told Jesus Christ is firstborn from the dead. Again, the language here means not like necessarily first in time. It can mean that but firstborn in the sense of preeminent or most important or first place, the prominent one. In fact, Jesus was not the first person ever raised from the dead. First Kings 17, the widow of Zarephath's son by Elijah. Second Kings 4, the Shunammite woman's son by Elisha. Second Kings 13, the man who touched Elisha's bones. That would have been a cool burial party. <laughs> the invading forces come in. They just happened to haven't dug the grave fast enough, they throw him in Elisha's tomb and boom, his bo- he hits his bones and he pops to life. That would have been quite the sight to see. Luke 7, the widow of Nain's son, Jairus' daughter, Mark 5, and John 11, Lazarus, all through Jesus Christ. He wasn't the first one in time raised from the dead. So when the Holy Spirit writes that Jesus Christ is the firstborn from the dead, he's not saying that Jesus 
was the first one ever raised. He's saying he's the most important one. Why? Why is Jesus Christ the most important one raised from the dead? Because in his resurrection, we now have resurrection hope for the future. And if he's not resurrected, then neither are we. Or let me rephrase that. We will be, but it will be for judgment, not for eternal life. So Jesus Christ is firstborn from the dead, meaning he's the most important person who has ever risen from the dead. So important that Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 15 that if he's not raised from the dead, our faith is futile. We have nothing. We should look for a different religion. We should go back to Judaism and wait for the Messiah to come. But if he is raised from the dead, then all authority belongs to him. And everybody who believes in him will be raised from the dead on the last day to eternal life. Our resurrection, Lazarus' resurrection, indeed, it showed Christ, but nobody in Lazarus is going to be raised from the dead because they're in Lazarus, right? Jesus rising from the dead is world-changing. It's life-changing for everybody who believes in him. And there are a couple phrases in this verse which add some texture to Jesus' preeminence over the grave. The first one, he is the beginning. Now, Paul has just spoken of the church with Jesus Christ as the head of the church, and then he says Jesus is the beginning. So some people say the phrase, he is the beginning, is a reference to the church, that Christ is the beginning of the church, and that is certainly true, right? He's the beginning of the new covenant era. Uh, this uh, this uh, group of people where the gospel goes out to the Gentiles now, no longer just confined to Israel. But the way the language is constructed, I think the phrase modifies Christ from the dead, saying that he's the beginning of the resurrection. He's the start of resurrection hope. When he came out of the dead, that's the beginning point of this new covenant. That's the beginning point of this church, this people who are gathered, not from Israel, but to the ends of the earth where the gospel is no longer found in one nation, one little location, but it goes out all the way to the ends of the earth. And we can bear testimony to that. How? Because we're sitting in America, thousands of miles away from the land of Canaan. And we believe the gospel as well, because we've heard it and the Holy Spirit has worked in our hearts. And verse 18, another phrase that highlights this, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead that puts texture on it, is is that in everything he might be preeminent. In all these things, Jesus Christ is the preeminent one from the dead, that in all things he might be preeminent. Or he's the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be the firstborn. (laughs) He's the first place from the dead, it's the same word group, that in everything he might be first place. In other words, what is Jesus to the church and for the church? Number one. He's number one over the grave. He's number one in our life together. Jesus Christ is the one who reigns supreme over the church and over the grave. And then thirdly, if you look at verse 19, we see Jesus as the reconciler. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The word reconcile through him to reconcile to himself all things means to reconcile completely or to bring back to a former state of harmony. It means to bring peace, to bring harmony between parties or entities which are not meshing well together. In 1971, John Lennon, Yoko Ono, his wife, wrote a song that became wildly popular because it put to words the longings of pretty much every human heart. Imagine there's no heaven, 
It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. Imagine no possessions, I wonder if you can, no greed or hunger, or no need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. And what he depicts in that song, the reason why it was so universally acclaimed even down to our day is it's, he's imagining heaven, a place where everybody gets along, a place where there's no more fighting, no more bloodshed, a place where everything is put right, a place where everything is reconciled. Everything is back in harmony. Everything works together. The creation isn't landsliding and earthquaking and hurricaning over people. And people are getting along as well. Imagine that. And indeed, it captured the hearts of human beings. What's interesting is that he knows something's wrong with this world. And human beings in general realize that. Which is why even in the world outside the church, you see this fight for justice. People know there's something wrong with the world. The remedies aren't always right, but they always have an aspect of truth or something they've latched onto that they're exactly right. Even general revelation can reveal that there is something wrong with this world. But there's a few weaknesses of his approach and even of the song. He believes that religion is part of the problem, nothing to kill or die for, and imagine a world where there's no religion to. What he's missing is that there is one true religion, Christianity, which has Christ as its head, which can put things right. There really is a religion like that. And he envisions people and nations being able to bring this about. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Notice he's enlisting help. Join us. Join this mission to reconcile everything together so that the world can be at peace. Join us. He envisions human beings as having the power to pull this off. And this may be the biggest problem with modern day belief, which is why I bring it up to us this morning. If only we would all band together in this world, if only all human beings could pull in the same direction toward peace and unity and harmony and love, then the world would be a better place. But the problem is this, we're all wicked and by nature hateful and hating God. We are selfish and proud by nature. None of us is large enough or powerful enough to create new hearts within ourselves. And none of us is powerful enough to create love in other people. So if this world that John Lennon imagines, which is really heaven, is ever to come about, we need someone large enough and powerful enough to reconcile all things so that creation and life works like it should, like God created it to be, like it did after he said everything is good. It's very good at the end of Genesis. Who is able to accomplish this? Verse 19, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You see what Paul's saying? Jesus is the one who can reconcile all things, things in heaven and on earth to himself and bring harmony, bring heaven, bring peace so that everything works as it ought to. Who is this? He is the fullness of God. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. We need God to pull this off. How can we make a heaven? How can we create a heaven? We can't, no matter how much we might try. 
The church can't create heaven. Only Jesus can reconcile all things to himself, things in heaven and on earth. So the Bible's answer to the question, is anyone powerful enough to bring back harmony in all of creation? Yes, Jesus Christ is the one who's powerful enough to accomplish this. And how is he going to accomplish this? He, he did by making peace with, with, with the blood of his cross. Verse 20, making peace by the blood of his cross. So the key to making all things new, to having all things reconciled to Jesus, to bringing about heaven on earth, to bringing so, so a reality that all things work in harmony with each other, the key to that is Jesus making peace by the blood of his cross. I want to pause just on one word here for a moment before we expand on this, and that word is blood. Because in the Bible, it's a, it's a word used fairly frequently. The Israelites came out of Egypt in Exodus 12 by the blood. Exodus 29, when the priests were consecrated, blood played a significant role in the ceremony. You can read that Exodus 29, verses 20 and following. Leviticus, that book is just covered in blood. There's blood everywhere. And imagine the bloodbath. You remember the dedication ceremony of the temple that Solomon built in 1 Kings 8? I love looking at this and thinking about this. There are 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep. A sheep has one and a half gallons of blood in it, an ox about eight gallons of blood. If even 10% of that blood spilled out during the sacrifice, you'd have 100,000 gallons of blood on the ground. If you were a priest, you're just covered in this stuff. Blood everywhere. What's the point? Well, the point is not that if you were a priest, you'd want to take a nice long hot shower and you'd be washing all the time. Of course you would, right? <laughs> Looking forward to the end of the day when you can finally get out of all this dried blood everywhere that's all over you. But the point is this, that blood plays a vital role in the old covenant. And in the new covenant, we're told this, Acts 20, 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Romans 3, we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Hebrews 9, 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Why blood? Leviticus 17, 11, the life of the flesh is in the blood. Verse 14 of Leviticus 11, the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. The blood of sacrificial animals was equivalent to their lives. And Mark Maynell says this regarding the blood of the cross here in Colossians 1. The sight of blood was a serious matter. This is why Leviticus insisted that the life of every creature is its blood. Because when blood oozes out of a wound rather than pumping around the body, death is not far off. But we know that Jesus didn't just almost died, didn't just shed a little bit of blood or have a little bit of cut on him. But he bled so much so that he gave his life. And that's what the blood of the cross has to do with. Jesus gave his life. When you bleed out, you die. When animals were offered as a sacrifice and their blood was thrown on the altar, it meant that those animals died. It was the picture of a substitute. And Jesus died on the cross. He gave up his entire life. We're told actually he breathed his last. It was it. The blood of the cross is what Jesus Christ had to do to reconcile all things to himself. Now let me conclude this way. Jesus Christ came into this world to do more than save us. He came to save us. And when we start looking at verse 21, we'll see that that is God's work of redemption 
He came to take dead people and make them alive in Christ. Absolutely. But he came on a reconciliation mission into a creation that is groaning until the day when it will be revealed just how glorious the sons of God are. A creation that's longing for the day and a creation that knows what? That there's something wrong. In other words, if you want to go interview the mountains, if we could. Is there anything wrong? Yes. <laughs> we keep landsliding. Interview the waves. Is there something wrong? Yeah, wind blows us and we kill people because we wash ships over. Interview the planets. Is there something wrong? Yes, we're not functioning as God made us to be. Even the creation groans and understands this, right? If creation were personified. So Jesus Christ has come on a reconciliation mission, not just to reconcile us to God. He did that. More on that next week. But to make all things in heaven and on earth work together. And more, let me say it this way. He didn't come just to get us into heaven. He had to go all the way to the cross just to create a heaven. Just to make a place where all things could be reconciled to, meaning all things could work in harmony and secure our entrance into that as well. So it involves our salvation, Jesus Christ's work on the cross. In fact, that's the primary work. But it's even bigger than that when Paul talks about all things being reconciled to Jesus Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. So Jesus Christ is not only the only one who can get you into heaven, he's the only one who can make possible the recreation of heaven upon earth. He not only secures our entrance into heaven by his death on the cross, he creates heaven itself without God taking on flesh and dying on the cross to make peace between God and man. There would be no new creation, no heaven to look forward to entering, no place where all things in creation are reconciled to Jesus and put back into proper harmony. One more thing I want us to think about. We are called to be those who spend our lives doing justice, righting wrongs, defending the cause of the oppressed, loving our neighbors, right? That's what we're called to do as God's people. But let's make sure we don't fall into the trap, into the trap of thinking that by the work we do in our generation, creation will be set right. It won't be. Why can't the church set creation right? Because it's not big enough or powerful enough because it's not God. We're just the body. The head, Jesus Christ, he can set things right. He is big enough and powerful enough to turn everything around. And he has done that through the work of his cross. And we are on a trajectory, beloved, to get to a place where there is a new heavens and a new earth. And Jesus Christ is the only one powerful enough to bring that about. And there are Christians, well-meaning Christians, who think if only we work harder, we can create heaven on earth. We can pull this off. We can create Zion here. It's just not going to work. It can't happen. And in fact, even if you could take all the wicked people like Solzhenitsyn talked about and put them in one corner of the earth and have all the really good people dwell together, we'd soon discover that the dividing line between good and evil doesn't run between us and them. It runs right through our heart. And we could be in a room all alone by ourselves, and we'd realize that the reason I'm not in heaven isn't because of the room or the color of paint on the wall. It's because I'm here. 
because this sin is still inside of me. And that's why I know I'm not in heaven yet. So beloved, how big is Jesus? He reigns over all creation. He's the sovereign Lord over all of it. He holds everything together, including Adam's. How big is he in the church? He's the head of the church. He's the Lord of the church. He's the shepherd of all the sheep. And he alone is capable of taking us as his people into heaven. He alone is capable, the triune God, of creating a heaven, of bringing heaven down on earth and filling it with people. And so indeed, let us serve the Lord well. Let us do so with joy and exuberance. Let us love being his people. But let us never mistake who the head is. Let us always understand our limits. That in our generation, we've got a role. We've got things to do. We've got people to care for. We've got voices to speak up for those who are being oppressed. Absolutely. But we're not going to make heaven on earth. For that, we're waiting for Jesus to come. And he will come very soon. Let's pray.